Today, I'm thrilled to be talking with Pamela Reichman, an Emmy-winning producer, writer, and business executive focused on women in the workforce. She's the author of The Stiletto Network and has written for The New York Times, Financial Times, and Washington Post, among other publications. Pamela has been featured widely in the press. She's appeared on The Today Show, Rock Center with Brian Williams, Bloomberg TV, and MSNBC, where she's a contributor, and in publications such as the Chicago Tribune, New York Post, Forbes, and Bloomberg. Before becoming a journalist, Pamela worked in finance. She earned her undergraduate degree in comparative literature from Princeton University and her master's in journalism from NYU. In this episode, I'm talking to Pam about her latest book, Candace Pert, Genius, Greed, and Madness in the World of Science, and its heroine, scientist, activist, and trailblazer, Candace Pert. And with that, here's Pamela Reichman. Pam, thank you so much for coming. I'm so happy to see you. Um, for listeners, Pam and I are old friends, and um, it's just been such a, you know, so exciting to be able to catch up with you and have you here and see you in person. It's an honor. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, well, glad glad, um, glad you could make it this afternoon. I'm very glad. So we chatted before we got the microphones rolling and um, talked about sort of what you've been up to. But I, for listeners, I think before we start talking about your new book and the incredible subject of your book, um, I kind of think it's important to sort of give us some background about how you how you got to the subject, what you've been up to, your background is in both journalism and in business. Um, what led you from there to Candace Pert? Well, in a lot of ways, I felt primed for this topic. I mean, in some ways, I felt called um, because my background is not linear and it is unique. And Candace's thinking was not linear and it is unique. I'm not comparing myself to Candace the genius. I'm just saying that there was a lot in my background that was sort of relevant to her story or into telling this story. So I, this is my third career incarnation. I, um, my Pam is very young and very beautiful. So that's very <laughs> exciting that she has had such a, a diverse very uh, career so far. Not as young as I once was, <laughs> but not as old as I'll be. It's like looking in a mirror, Pam, <laughs> you and I, same age. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I started, I, my undergrad degree was in comparative literature and my first love was always writing, but I took a circuitous path. I ended up working in uh, management consulting and then in finance and then pivoted to journalism, decided uh, simultaneous to sort of making babies that my true goal was to write, to become a writer. And then um, after my first book was published, I was approached by movie and TV people. And for the, ne- for the last decade, I have worked in producing and writing both documentary and scripted film. So that's initially how I came to find Candace Pert, because her story was so fascinating to me. Tell me about though. So you're you worked in finance. You're now, you know, a mom, and you're writing, right? Writing for a bunch of different publications, and then you, in doing that, just sort of a light bulb went off again, kind of reminding you that this is a passion of yours, and you want to go back to writing. Did that then lead you to that first book? And tell us about that first book. Was that was that called Stiletto Network, no. if I recall? That's right. So. I was writing for, I'd written for the Financial Times for their wealth page and then was writing about entrepreneurship for the New York Times when in 2010 or 2011, I covered an event 
um, for the New York Times that brought together 50 of some of the nation's most high-powered women. So 25 women from the East Coast flew west to Silicon Valley to meet and learn from their entrepreneurial counterparts. And the, the controversial thesis of this article was that basically Valley girls do it better, that the unique entrepreneurial California ecosystem, girls. California we girls. Katie Perry knows know. this. We know this. <laughs> That's right. The, the, the unique entrepreneurial ecosystem of particularly Silicon Valley allows women and minorities to move more quickly in their careers and take more risks. And so at that event, I met all of these women and I started to discern a trend. I started realizing, I started discovering um, groups mostly of no more than 10 women, dinner groups, um, in all industries and in all age groups. I found them in every major American city and globally too. And I followed the money. I found that women from their 20s to their 80s were doing the same thing at the same moment in history and there was a huge rolling thunder. I charted billions of dollars of transactions, corporate board seats attained, and companies founded and funded, all a as a result of these genuine female friendships, all as a result of just these groups of 10. You know, and when you sort of look at the massive Venn diagram and put these all together, you know, this was pre me too. I never could have seen where the world was going. But the thesis of Stiletto Network, that book, was that in the next decade, we were going to see an explosion of female wealth and power. That is so fascinating. So take me back. So who organized that summit? You were reporting for the New York Times, but mm -hmm. who came up with the idea? Was the idea or the premise of it women trying to get women together with other women from both coasts in different industries? Yes. You mentioned the 10 women at the table. Were, were women kind of organized there based on what they were working on or how, what was, who put it together? And so it was organized by Janet Hansen, who was the founder. She was a Goldman alum and I had worked at Goldman Sachs back okay. in the day. And, um, she, at, after she left Goldman, she had founded a group called 85 Broads, which is very funny. Goldman's initial address was 85 Broad Street and it was <laughs> all for female alums of Goldman. Now that's now turned into, um, Sally Krawcheck took it over a couple of years ago, a number of years ago and call, and it's now called Elevate. And okay. it's, sort of it's a broad it's a much more broad um, women's network um, and women's support network and with financial literacy and all types of interesting things but where it started was with Janet Hansen getting female alums of Goldman together she met another woman Deborah Perry Piscione who had moved she had started her career uh, on the east coast in Washington DC she had worked in media and moved to Silicon Valley and had this light bulb moment she was like gosh Women are so different here. Again, they take more risks in their careers. They're, you know, they're so much more empowered. What is in the water? You know, like yeah. what's their secret? And it started with these two women. I had interviewed Deborah for a separate article um, in the Times, and she told me about this. And it was sort of, and interestingly, I was at an interesting part of my life. I just had my third son. I would just had just finished nursing. I was exhausted. I was sort of looking for, I, you know, they say that research is me search. Right. In some I was way. gonna say you're looking for some kind of inspiration to get out I, of. I was. Yeah. I was exhausted. I was like, this is so much harder than I thought it was going to be. And to see these women who were doing just really exciting work in the world inspired me and I wanted to I wanted to report on them but I also wanted to know the secrets right and so that article came out in um I think November 2012 or or no 2010 or something and um and there I met women who started talking about their dinner that, that that was a group of 50 women but I met a lot of them I'd stayed in touch with them I'd interviewed them in advance of the article and then afterward and suddenly it actually at that 
by the time that event took place, six months after I started my reporting, it was clear I had 100 pages of single space notes. Wow. And it was clear I, I hadn't even been planning to write a book, but I joked around that, you know, I had another baby and this one was a girl. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> Which, you know, have, being the mother of three sons, it's exciting that you had, the, yeah. had your, fourth, your fourth child was a girl. What, tell me, so did you ever discern what, what was in the water? You were talking about, you know, women on the West Coast being, taking more risks. And did, what, did you have one factor that you attributed that to? Or how did you? The, so I tell, Stiletto Network tells, um, it, it actually uses an individual woman's story. Almost every chapter uses sort of an individual woman's chap, uh, story as um, a as a lead in to sort of what her group has done and the impact that each group is making. And then it sort of also brings in economic history, women's history, sociology, you know, I mean, it's um, re deep research from, from all areas of life, but essentially I wanted to make it, I wanted to make it really concrete. And then at the end of that book, I actually have 11 tips, <laughs> you know, that, that base, cause the idea was not just to, tell the world that women were doing something interesting, but actually to catalyze a movement to basically say, okay, here's what these women were doing. They weren't all high powered when they started these groups. These groups are actually the key to their success. You know, they, by rallying together and sort of following this formula, you can change your life too. And so I ended up doing, you know, doing a ton of speaking engagements to sort of all types of corporate when women's groups to teach them what I'd learned. So that's so interesting to me because I'm sure you've heard as a as a woman and a professional that sometimes women are um, sort of the worst enemies of women. Um, what was your did you encounter that? What was different about this group? And was that 100%. part of the, the, the self-selecting or, or the process of who um, Jane Hansen kind of brought together. Was that intentional on her part? Or did you find that too when you were doing this research? So interestingly, I was telling everybody that Stiletto Network, I was sort of billing it as a love story disguised as a business story. You know, obviously these are these these were tips and tricks that you could use to sort of get ahead in your career. And yet at the same time, these groups were rooted in real love, in deep female friendship and the desire to see not only yourself succeed, but also to be massive advocates for other women in the world and, and mentors. And, you know, a, a, a number of the groups were sort of cross-generational and cross-industry. They were actually built very differently from men's networks, which tend to be very silo-based. Like if right. you're a male banker, you know, and you're in the aviation group or something, well, then you know your clients and you know other dudes who are bankers. And what I found was, um, so there were two things happening simultaneously to answer your question. One, I was coming out with this love story and I had actually had wonderful experiences with women up to that point in my career. I, but I had heard all the rumors, you know, that the backstabbing, horrible, sharp elbowed bitch, I'll never work for a woman yeah. again. You know, I, you know, I'd heard these. And so I tried to figure out, okay, I don't think that one group of people of any sort is necessarily good or bad. I look for the systemic reasons that actually sort of encourage different behaviors. And what I found was the fact that these groups were cross-industry and those stereotypes, well, th these two points were inextricably linked. You know, historically, and this will get to Candace's story yeah. too, and this sort of also primed me, all of this sort of background in, um, in, in women's professional re you know, research primed me for Candace. 
Um, what I found was that if you go back, you know, in many industries, you know, in all industries, but even now today in certain stalwart industries, take banking or law, for instance, you know what it's like. There was really only room for one woman at the top of any right. particular department, if not company or an entire industry. And so, you know, when there's only room for like the guys, they were all going to make partner together, you know, so they have an incentive to actually it's I scratch your back, you scratch mine, you know, we're all on the golf course together, you have to build those relationships with your peers. But when there's only room for one, the systems were pitting women against each other and minorities, you know, you can't shine a light on that talented up and comer if she is inevitably going to knock you off your perch. And you can't share information and resources with the woman in the office next to you if, you know, one of you is going to get pushed out. It became this sort of scarcity mentality. That's where, really interesting. If it is like the Hunger Games, right, yeah, where there's only one person who's going to survive, yeah. it changes the dynamic of the of the relationship. It does entirely. And so what I found was that what actually began as a negative which is the fact that women had to look outside of their immediate ecosystem to find counterparts, to find other women who understood both their professional and personal issues, yep. actually evolved to be a real positive. Because these groups that I was finding, many of them were cross-industry at a point in time in our society when so much innovation is taking place at the junctions of in- industries. So, it you know, Having a silo-based network is actually a detriment, but having people you can draw on who know how things are done in all different industries is actually a huge benefit. And so part of the thesis that in the next decade we were going to see an explosion of female wealth and power was based on the fact that women were drawing from a much broader and deeper knowledge base than their male counterparts. And that's what you found was working about that particular summit, that group together was you saw sort of women networking, building relationships across different professional fields. When you talked about those groups of 10, so there would be mix a, a mix of different backgrounds within the, those groups of 10. And because of that structure, you didn't have that situation where there was there was the um, the feeling of being competitive. It was more, how can we be supportive and where there are synergies, perhaps? Yeah, exactly. Particularly in Silicon Valley, I would say where, you know, and Hollywood is like this too. Um, you know, as opposed to working, you know, clinging white knuckled to your patch of power at Goldman Sachs and, you know, right. and, 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 you know, fighting your way up the ladder when you're just in one organization, when you have industries or, you know, that are largely project-based, so much of your... Um, network depends on your reputation, your, your your ability to sort of move in and out of different groups. And I think this startup culture, that happens a lot more. You know, companies oh, come together yeah. and bis- disband. In Hollywood, productions come together and disband. So I think that there is an incentive to sort of build relationships, you know, more broadly and also behave yourself you know, yeah. a little more nicely sometimes. If actually, because you're going to be singing for your supper, when you go find your next project. That's so interesting. And do you think, you know, in your experience or what you've observed since you've written the Stiletto Network in other industries, let's take banking or or law where there maybe is a more, or, or even working for a corporation where there's more, there's more of a hierarchy or, or a certain linear path. Do you think now that it's not just the one woman or the, the one, you know, person of color, or the one that they're looking, you know, which would be 20 years ago, um, it's that there's less of that competitive nature because there's more 
there's more spots, there's more opportunity. A hundred percent. And and part of it is I wanted to prove that. So Stiletto Network, I mean, I tell everybody that Stiletto Network, um, that my my life is the power, is a testament to the power of Stiletto Network, you know, that that I am now doing work that I never expected to do. And, and inadvertently, you know, I could never have started the process of Stiletto Network um, trying to sort of capitalize on other women's careers. But what ended up happening was I felt the power of that story because it, I didn't think I was going to write a book. And then I didn't think that book would be optioned. And then I didn't think that I would be then, you know, working with senior executives in Hollywood and on the writing team. And then. So start- tell us about that. Yeah. So, t- so you've yeah. written Stiletto Network yeah. and now yeah. you're, you've, it sounds like also when you were there, you, you developed your own relationships and connections and met people there and then started kind of going through this creative process of what's next yeah. for you coming out of that book. And so what happened? How, how do we end up in Hollywood? I know yeah. we have an Emmy, you know, on, on our shelf now, which I can't wait to talk about. But tell us about about kind of what happened from there. Um, I, I did. And so I... Again, I think a lot of the stories in Stiletto Network show women at pivotal points in their lives. And I think when I started that process, you know, in more than a decade ago now, I had three young children and some very big dreams, and I really did not know how to achieve them. You know, it was a lot harder to be a mom and, you know, in in the workforce. And, And again, I don't I didn't blame anybody outside. I really wanted to be an involved mom. I really also wanted to live my dreams, Yeah, you know, and I didn't, and I knew that there was like, I felt pulled every day. The days I felt like I was doing a great job as a mom, I felt like I was doing a terrible job at work and vice versa. And I know that that's a common narrative, but people weren't as vocal about it, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago when we first had our kids, you know, you were supposed to, at least in the industries I was working in, you were supposed to sort of, you know, have a front, you know, hundred percent. And, um, so I was having all these feelings and not really knowing what to do with them. And so again, Stiletto Network, um, I found women who were extraordinarily vulnerable with me and told me the stories of their, the pivotal points in their life, their stories of transition, birth, death, divorce, um, you know, elder care, the, the moments where they felt weak and scared and all of these other women rallied around them and sometimes knew better than they did what was good for them. You know what? You are meant to be an entrepreneur. Get out of that big job. You know, they take, walked them to the yeah. wood, they walked their friends to the woodshed and, and gave them the courage to do the things that they didn't even know they could do. And in some ways, that's how these groups were so successful. And then they would amplify their achievements. They would amplify their success. So, you know, we as women are taught not to brag and not to serve. But if you have, you know, your team of people, your your cheering section out in the world across these different industries, blaring your success and making sure that you're chosen to speak on that panel or that your resume gets to the top of the pile, they were creating opportunities where opportunities did not previously exist. And I will say that I was an absolutely the recipient of that. I worked really damn hard for it, but I met an incredible group of people who are now, many of whom are my very dear friends and um, who have helped me in every area of life. And it also was an incredible lesson to me because I always thought this way, but I didn't necessarily go out of my way to help other people and think about all the different people I could connect them to. And now it's like second nature you know, and, and it's good karma, you know, it's good karma and good business to help people you care about. 
Oh, 100%. So did did any of these women that you met there and that you were researching for your book, did they take you out to the woodshed and said, Pam, you have to develop this into a show or you have to take this concept and and you know, move forward with it in different directions beyond just the book. Yeah. I mean, they were, uh, you know, they became, many of them became my personal board of advisors. You know what I mean? It was, you know, if they weren't necessarily pushing me to, to make it a show, they were thinking about, okay, well, you know, how can you monetize this? Make it a company, make it, you know, get a consult. I'll give you an example, actually. And this goes back to your initial um, your initial question about women in the workforce and that whether there's more room for one. So, after Stiletto Network came out, I was um, I'd spoken a number of times at Credit Suisse to to various female audiences. I had some senior sponsorship there when the bank still existed. Yeah, and I was pulled <laughs> into the office of the CMO, who was also the head of talent, um, Pamela Thomas Graham, who's amazing. She was. Harvard, Harvard Law, Harvard Business, first black woman partner at McKinsey, um, you know, president of CNBC. I mean, she's she is just an incredible force. And she said um, she wanted me to be on an advisory board that she was building that um, she was along with the head of private wealth. She was um, creating a group that target it was called the New Markets Initiative, the targeted women, African-American and LGBTQ plus investors. And she wanted me to be on the Women's Advisory Board. And that, I mean, Pat Mitchell, of the Paley, head of the Paley Center was there, Ann Veneman, the former Treasury Secretary. There were all these, there were already a couple really high, you know, high level impressive women on that board. And I was kind of like, well, this is very exciting, you know. And my friend Claudia Batten, and I will kiss her for this, who I met through Stiletto Network, was like, are you kidding me? That's BS. Do you think Malcolm Gladwell gets asked to get on an advisory board and give away all of his knowledge for that he's worked on for four years for $30,000? That's crap. Get paid for your knowledge. These people are experts in their field, but you are an expert in all of this. You could build this whole program for her. Go back and have that conversation. And I did. And I ended up on retainer working for the CMO of Credit Suisse for a couple of years and then building programs with her and Tina Brown to talk women of impact. Then I brought her, um, Shaquille O'Neal. We did a separate event for, you know, it was called the black men's leadership retreat, you know, in the, in the way, in the wake of the first black lives matter, it, it expanded my purview of what I was doing and what I thought I could do tremendously. And that's Isn't just one that example. So part of that is just thinking, you mentioned earlier, women as part of our upbringing, maybe not always advocating for ourselves, or you, I think you said bragging about ourselves or bragging about our accomplishments. I've also, I, I don't know where I saw this, but, you know, sometimes when we communicate, we'll put in writing, like, so sorry to bother you, but, right? And I'm, I'm working hard, like, thank you for your patience as an alternative to that. But it speaks to that, um, you know, you, you were so excited to be a part of this advisory board and how great that this friend of yours, mentor of yours said, wait a second, what about this? And you noticed that when you asked, yeah, you it it you were able to do that and put that together, and they were thrilled to what have you. What she said was, yeah. do, "Do you want a job? Do you want a full time job, or do you want a consulting engagement?" I said, "A consulting engagement," because I already had the TV show sort of in the works at that point. And she's like, "Okay, okay, well, tell me you about know? that. Tell <laughs> me about the TV like, show." But well, okay, I'll, I'll tell you one more thing about the Credit Suisse thing at that yeah. point, because at that point, I knew that the Queen Bee myth was not true. I knew that women were not back, you know, just backstabbing each other. I knew that there was a systemic problem in corporate America. 
And I, because of my Credit Suisse work, um, sat next to Stefano Nutella, who was the head of research one night at a dinner party. And he's like, okay, women's stuff, what should I be looking at? And I said, well, we should overturn the Queen Bee myth. And so I ended up working with the head of research at Credit Suisse on a separate consulting engagement where we looked at um, the 3,000 top, like 3,000 public companies. And we looked at women, not just at the top, but also the numbers of women they had in different levels of management. And what we discerned was that the more, you know, it's, it's what people think. The more women you have, the more they hire women, the more they yeah. pay women, the more they support women. It, has, it is really like when they talk about, you know, on corporate boards, how to shift the dynamic, you need three. And so you don't need one woman because that's not enough to convince everybody else. And she's always going to be in a defensive position. You need three and then everything changes. And it's the same thing in corporate Including groups. more work getting done, by More the way. work, yeah. Well, and also, you know, all the studies show that with greater diversity comes better outcomes financially. Right. You know, because people have blind spots. And if you're only thinking in one way, then you're going to miss things. What an impact, Pam. It changed my whole life. No, I, I'm you, so grateful. The, the fact that you did that research and bringing that to Credit Suisse, and I'm sure there was a ripple effect of that. You, you Actually, Melinda at Gates and Sheryl Sandberg, like, showed it, you know, were trotting it out at various events. It was really, it was an honor and exciting. Oh, it's so exciting. Really, really important. And then so simultaneously you're doing that work and you just sort of casually dropped in the TV show. But I, I mean, you do have three <laughs> children. She does sleep. I don't know how many hours a night, but n- not I enough. I don't look apparently. very good right now. Um, you do. You do. You must be like one of those people that can survive on three or four hours of sleep a night. But so tell us, so, TV, so the, is the TV show coming out of the Stiletto Network? Is this is happening? You've got so that is now one of sort of a suite of projects that I'm working on um, that, you know, initially it didn't go because, I mean, again, mandates changed. It, it was an incredible learning experience, I have to say. And it also tapped into, you know, I, I'll say this again, that experience, I did not, you know, you think you have a plan for your life and it just something happens, another door opens. And if Stiletto Network and that whole experience gave me the courage to walk through it. So after Stiletto Network was published, I was approached by a number of producers, most, you know, most of whom were not that impressive and some of whom wanted to real housewives it up. Like, you know, like Stiletto Network, that's, that's a title I can sell. But like, I just saw this becoming a disaster. But then I, yeah, after being in a lot of the wrong rooms and really learning a lot about how Hollywood works, um, I ended up in, in a number of the right rooms. And so I was working with um, a tremendous group of partners on that. Um, this, it fell apart in COVID, <laughs> you know, not surprisingly. Did, yeah. And the mandates changed. So, I, you know, I, that's it's not dead yet. But what that process taught me is, you know, I was not necessarily planning to pivot away from journalism at that point. But writing a book made me realize how much I loved writing in my own voice and being more creative. And I had also been a theater geek for my whole life. I'd been producing theater. I'd been on theater boards. Um, I wrote my senior thesis in college on French theater. This was like core to my being. And I had been squirreling away material for 20 years thinking I was going to write plays someday. And one of these producers said, hey, you're really good with dialogue. Have you ever thought about writing for movies and TV? And I was like, oh, my God, that's my secret dream. And it's like it was again, it was the kind of thing where I didn't even 
I didn't even know to dream that. And but you sort of had that in you know you had that in you, right? Yeah, you, you I, I had I had your, hundreds of pages of yeah. material, thinking like, when was I going to do this? And then suddenly I did. You know, so I've sort of spent the last decade both writing. I hired a coach and stuff to help me because it, there's art, and then there's also a sort of science to this. And I've talked to everybody I could talk to in the industry, and I just love this work so much. I want to do it till I'm dead. Ugh. Like I just love it. It's like I, you know. It's so great to, again, at any age, I'm 49 and I just feel like the world is just beginning. And I love that feeling. Oh, it's so great. So tell me you, you kind of would be working as a screenwriter for Stiletto Network or a, or a writer producer if that, you know, as that was being developed, but then you won an Emmy last year. Tell me about that. Was that for writing? Was that for production? And it was, How did a, that come about? As a producer. So when I was bringing my writing to other producers, the feedback I got from a number of people was really valuable. They said, yeah, you know what? Your writing is great, but this industry is really hard to break into. <laughs> you know, like yeah. you don't just like show up and say, oh, I'm, I'm, the, I'm leading a writer's room or whatever. <laughs> you know, and, and I understood that. And so they said, you know, why are you coming out? I mean, as we've seen in the writer strike, unfortunately, writers are sometimes treated like the ho- the hired help in yeah. Hollywood. They don't really have. Um, hopefully, writers have more power now, but historically, very little. And so, unless you are, you know, David E. Kelly, right? I mean, yeah. there there are some exclusive writers, but for the most part, writers can get screwed fairly easily. And so, the feedback I got from producers is, why aren't you coming out? with your producer hat on, you know, you've produced theater before you have, you know, business background, sort of, I spent my first, whatever, nine years, eight years of my career in management consulting and finance. So I, you know, what I did was I hired a line producer. I had him, you know, build up a budget. I had him teach me exactly what goes into in every single line item I learned and I had a basis for learning. So I did come out as a producer. And so part of what I've been doing and also, this is sort of how I came to find Candace Pert. I have been not only writing my own scripts and coming up with um, treatments for shows uh, on my own, but also looking to produce other people's work. And so the the Emmy was I got back in touch with Cynthia Wade, who is an Oscar winning um, director who I met through Stiletto Network, um, you know, through somebody, through yep. somebody. Uh, she won an Oscar for Freeheld, um, her documentary short. Um, she was nominated for Mondays at Racine and we were just, I had an idea for a documentary that I was sort of pitching her based on Candace, interestingly. And she said, well, I've got this other thing going on right now. Maybe you want to hear about it. And her story was called The Flag Makers. It was so deeply, deeply moving to me. Um, she was, this was, you know, during COVID, she found the, um, largest flag making company in the United States. And it's based in Oak Creek, Wisconsin, right near where Jacob Blake was shot and is almost entirely staffed by immigrants and refugees. So it does not, it's not a political piece. It doesn't hit you over the head. It is this beautiful meditation on the American dream. Wow. And she was doing this at a time, I'm going to cry, where our country was so deeply divided. And you saw a, a refugee from Rwanda sitting next to someone who, you know, escaped the Gulf War sitting next to a Mexican-American whose son was fighting for our country, and yet she's being discriminated against. Yeah. You know, and you saw, and then Barbara, who's, you know, a, a card-carrying Trump supporter, you know, but doesn't see the dissonance that all of these people she loves, who she works with, you know, 
under his, you know, regime are being discriminated against. Yeah. And it is all what it is this beautiful story about why people come to this country and what what makes our country great. And Cynthia, what she wanted to do actually was, oh my God, the final shoot. We had Ellis Island to ourselves at 6 oh. a.m. It was so beautiful because Raditza, one of the, you know, the managers with a senior manager there, um, had never seen, had never been to New York. She'd never seen the Statue of Liberty where the eater flags fly. And we got to all witness that moment. It was so, so it's Nat Geo, but it's also on Hulu and Disney Plus. Oh, amazing. And I mean, it was like, you know, so when I was an executive producer and, you know, getting an Emmy was just, we could have won no awards and I just would have been the most proud person of Cynthia and that whole project. Yeah, I just think it was beautiful so beautiful. Story. You know, um, we have a, a friend who became a citizen, gosh, maybe... Emmeline was a baby and we took her. So I don't, 17 years ago, 16 years ago, and we went to Brooklyn and I can't recall if it was in a, I think it was a courtroom, but they were, everybody was being sworn in as American citizens and looking, every person was different in the room and the pride and joy of the people there. And by the way, they all, you know, study to take their exam, then they pass their exam and then they, they, yeah, get, they know more they, about this country than they, we do. I know it's a, it's a, it's a really, um, um, moving and poignant um, moment and process and and something I feel like most American because I think people take their we all sort of take our freedom here for granted sometimes and watching people come from other countries with such pride and, and excitement about becoming American is really something something to see um, okay so you by the way what a great <laughs> subject and I, I can't wait to see it the flag makers, everybody watch um, oh, it. <laughs> but while you're so while you're the executive producer of that project, you're obviously writing this book about Candace Pert. I love the title, Candace Pert, Genius, Greed, and Madness, right? Mm -hmm. tell, tell me, how did you come to discover Candace and what was that? So it, this is interesting process. too. And again, so much of this is organic, right? I mean, how do you find a story? How does somebody appeal to you? Um, I read Candace's 1997 memoir, which was called Molecules of Emotion. It was recommended to me by my writing coach um, because I was working on another script. And she said, you know, maybe you want to make this character a scientist or something, you know, like maybe you need to add some gravitas or something. And she knew that I was sort of into mind body stuff, you know, that I had sort of just in my personal life, I sort of, you yeah. know, follow all the biohackers and read about peak performance. And like, you know, because I also want to, I, I want to age well. And I, I was going to say, now I that we like, found our passion at 49, you want to, right. You know, it's like, I want to do it. Till, I, yeah. I know I want to do this for another 50 years. So I want to be capable and, and switched on. And so she knew that I was into this stuff. And she's like, well, this is actually read this woman's story because she you'll find it interesting, both personally and professionally. So I read Molecules of Emotion. This is like in 2015. And I was like, holy cow, this is not research for another story. This is the main event. You know, I learned that Candace um, discovered the opioid receptor in 1972 as a 26-year-old grad student, right? I mean, I learned that Candace was the mother of the mind-body revolution. I knew that Candace, you know, I learned that Candace developed peptide T, which is the underground AIDS drug featured in Dallas Buyers Club. I mean, you know, she was like this Forrest Gump figure in history. Like she played major roles in huge <laughs> movements, not only in American history, but global history. And I was like, 
I got to get, I, I want to produce this. This is, this is, this is her. Right. This, and why is she not Why doesn't anybody know name? about her? Yeah. Right. And so I approached her. She died in 2013. And, you know, I read her book maybe 18 months later. And I was like, oh, gosh. And then suddenly I started to hear her name, actually, on some of these, on Dave Asprey's, um, you know, Bulletproof podcast yeah. and stuff. He, Deepak Chopra credits Candace with um, with uh, forming the scientific basis, that what became his career, um, you know, the mind-body connection. And so I, 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 you know, suddenly it's like when you learn a new word, it's like you see it everywhere. I was like, oh my gosh, she exists out in the world. So I approached her widower um, who had the rights to her book wearing my producer hat with the intention to make a film about her life, you know, a biopic. Um, however, because her book was published in 1997 and she died in 2013, I also signed a separate agreement with him called the Life Story and Consulting Agreement, where wherein he agreed to um, open his Rolodex, give me, you know, sit for interviews, um, introduce me to other people, her other family members, give me archival materials, everything that I would need to find basically the last 30 pages of the script. How did her story end? And Wait, so I, I just want to inter interrupt yes. you there for a second. So you approached him and you were you would buy the rights because you were you were thinking of writing a screenplay about her Correct. at that time. Okay. Based on molecules of emotion. And exactly. Based on, okay. Yep. And that was my initial intention. But what I found was so shocking to me in so many ways that it then became clear that I was working on another book. This wasn't just a screenplay. This was, um, I mean, Candace's personal story is an incredible launch pad to discuss much wider issues within the American medical establishment and with regard to sort of women in particular. Okay. Well, let's, so let's do that because I, you know, in preparation for today, you know, we talked about, you know, you were saying that her name was popping up everywhere after you learned about her from, from reading her book. And then is that the same thing happened with me? I mean, I was sort of thinking like, who is Candace Pert? And then I, I, you know, and it's fascinating what her contributions were to both to science and to sort of women's role within, within uh, the scientific community. So she's a graduate student, right? Mm -hmm. Johns Hopkins in the 1970s. And that is where she starts doing her research, I think, on now, the first thing was her discovering the op opioid receptor. Do you yes. want to talk about that? I mean, because you think about all the medications and For drugs sure. that have come out of that. And here she is. How did she make that discovery? And what happened after she made it? Yeah. I mean, well, part of what I say is that Candace is like Pandora who opened the box. And then also Cassandra who ended up warning everyone about the misuse okay. of her you know, of, of her what discovery. her intentions. Yeah. So this is actually, there's some really interesting history here that I discovered that I did not know at all before. You know, most people think that the opioid crisis started in the 1990s, but in fact, it started in the early 70s with Richard Nixon declaring war on drugs. So Richard Nixon wanted to escalate bombing in Vietnam, and he was dealing with a home population, an at-home population that disagreed with his, that, with his policies. And essentially what was happening was there was a massive heroin addiction both at home and abroad. 25% of soldiers fighting in Vietnam were addicted to a form of heroin that was 95% pure. The heroin, street heroin that you could get in the U.S. Yeah. was 5% pure. So you had these absolutely drug-addled soldiers being blamed 
for, or, you know, executing things like the My Lai massacre, right? right. And drugs were basically being blamed wow. for our soldiers, absolutely horrific, like gang rape of, and mass slaughter of ch- children and women abroad. And so this, this, this was, this was bad PR for Nixon, essentially. Then meanwhile, at home, you had reports of heroin addiction, basically the flower children who would, you know, they, this is where the term gateway drugs started being used, you know, had escalated from marijuana or, you know, to other things, you know, to heroin, essentially. So you had um, the the press was riddled in the early 70s of, you know, white, God forbid, right, white teenagers dying of heroin overdose, right? So again, Nixon has a huge PR problem. What does he do to sort of to get the American population on his side? He declares a war on drugs and he poured an unprecedented amount of money. He like the drugs are into scientific research to figure out how to cure heroin addiction. addiction. Yeah, I mean, to addiction. Yeah. Right. And so what does that mean? What had previously been what was called the Opiate Club, which is a very small group of scientists globally sort of studying addiction. It wasn't an area that anyone cared about at all. Suddenly, you put money and political influence and power into that, and everybody comes running. Everybody wants that, a piece of that pie for a grant, right? Because they also see it as a, you know, a stepping stone to, you know, press for them, the Nobel Prize, perhaps, right? Because Because the... The spotlight is on this. People are watching now. And so what ended up happening... That is so interesting thinking about how government can influence scientific research and kind of turn that... that into a turn that into a different direction if they're... you know, if if, because because of the access to to funds and and um, attention that you're talking about. A hundred percent. And, and, you know, when we get to AIDS later, it was the same thing, you know, Reagan ignored it. And then until he didn't, and then science ignored it until they didn't. I mean, it was the exact same process all over again, you know, 15 years later. Um, and Candace was at the center of both of those. So Candace is this young graduate student, right? Who basically, who had gotten accidentally pregnant at age 19 you know, with her. I mean, wow. she, Candace was a firebrand. She was wild in every area of life. You know, she was definitely, she, you know, t- to say that she marched to the beat of her own drum is, is an understatement. I mean, at her husband, Agu's, um, he, he was doing to fulfill his military duty. He was working at Edgewood Arsenal, um, you know, and his, his boss was like this Southern Colonel and to the, uh, to, to the, the holiday party, the Christmas party, Candace brought, um, anatomically correct gingerbread cookie. You know, she, she would sunbathe in the nude, you know, like when, when all the other women were, were wearing, you know, beehive helmets and pillbox hats. She, she was like wild and free, didn't shave her legs, didn't shave her armpits. She didn't wear a bra. I mean, she was just like, she was like one of the original, just sort of absolute, like wild women hippies, you know? So it made her so fun to, to, to research and live with too. I mean, I, I even, and we can talk about this later, but you know, she did, she ended up doing some, some pretty rough things and bad things in her later life. But I still, I just, I love her and I love, I've loved living with her for the last six years. So the bottom line is Candace is this woman with like un, you know, unlimited amounts of chutzpah. And, you know, and, and so she's, it's the seventies. Nixon has now allocated attention and yeah. funds to this research. And then did she decide that she was going to start pursuing she was that a, or was she already working She was on in it? a grad program at Johns Hopkins um, University School of Medicine working for this wunderkind, you know, Saul Snyder, who was um, the youngest tenured professor at, you know, there at the time. And, um, and she had been assigned for her dissertation, a 
pretty boring assay because she was kind of sloppy and she was kind of wild, yeah. right? And she decided, no, no, no. What I want to do is I want to do something that actually has real world impact. I want to, I'm going to try to find the opiate receptor in part because she had had a personal experience, you know, again, research is me search. She yeah. had fallen with Agu. She had, he had had some sort of training at a MASH unit um, in the summer of 1970. And she, before she started grad school, she was taking um, riding lessons and fell from her horse and fractured her vertebrae. So she ended up in a, um, what started this, her fascination with opiates was personal because she was in a, you know, a, a hospital, like laid up for three weeks being given Demerol. And she was surrounded by soldiers from Vietnam who were all being given opioids and they were all hopped up. And she, and she realized she was like, oh my gosh, like she, she did not when I say in the book is she didn't, she wasn't addicted, but she became addicted to the concept of drug addiction because she, she realized how powerful it made her, right. you know, it made her feel blissful. She, and then she wanted to, she actually thought about stealing some on her way out. And she said, you know, she was thinking about like, this is also like the romantic story of opioids as told by poets throughout time. You know, I mean, this is, she was like, I want to know the biochemical medic, you know, mechanism by which this works and the human body. Yep. So after six months of trying, so Saul says yes, her, her mentor and her boss says yes. And after six months of trying, she's not getting anywhere. And he's like, okay, you know what? Enough. My job as your, you know, lab chief is to make sure that you actually get a dissertation. This isn't going anywhere. There's, you know, the competition is fierce. It's worldwide. We're going to put you back on your other assay. She decides she had a lightning bolt moment because she had also been working with her husband, Agu, who was also a scientist, had been working at Edgewood Arsenal with naloxone, which is a known, it's, it's called an antagonist. It's something that if you deliver it, and they didn't know how this worked, but they just know that it knew that it did work, that if you actually give naloxone to um, someone who's having a heroin overdose, that that person will come out of it. That, and is that, it'll is save that, a life. Is that nar Narcan? Is that... Is it in the Narcan kits or? Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure about Narcan. I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure. Um, but she knew that naloxone worked. And so she sort of, she ended up taking some from Agu's lab behind Saul's back. He went to a conference. This, I mean, this is the type of person she was. She took it behind Saul's back. She sent it to like New England nuclear facility to have it made radioactive behind his back. Somehow, I think she must have forged a signature or something like that. She got it. She hid the materials after being told to sort Why did she want to make it radioactive? Because that's actually, the, it's what the experiment oh, I, required. Okay, I see. To, to actually, see how it would... would yeah, to, it, okay. it's, to, to, it's like sort of like, you know, it's called a trace, you know, figuring out the weight of the bullseye. And she figured maybe naloxone was a more powerful way to find it rather than... I mean, we don't need to get into all the, the I, I, go, I go into it in the book, sort of the details of the experiment, but... Um, you know, for, for lay, lay listeners, lay readers, yeah. like basically, so she did something that was, you know, questionable, if not illegal. She waited till Friday night to all of her, to, until all of her um, colleagues went home. And I mean, this is, it's a crazy story. Her son, Evan, she got a call from Agu. Evan, w the babysitter was sick. Evan had to be picked up by, you know, at, at his daycare. So she makes this calculation. She's like, okay, I can run. I could pick up Evan. I could be back to the lab in an hour. Okay, what about the lab's prohibition against children with radioactive materials? Whatever. She took a flyer on it. You know, so she shows up with her, like, four-year-old son in the lab, gives him a bunch of, like, you know, test tubes to play with or something, and does this experiment, then waits on pins and needles until Monday. And lo and behold, she's figured out she finds the opiate receptor. 
She, she does what the world, what scientists the world over are doing. And in so doing, she thinks that she's found the first step in eradicating addiction. She thinks she's going to help people all over the world. And she never could have imagined the nightmare she set in motion. So what happens after that? So she makes this discovery. Does she, I don't know. She writes a paper about this. She talks to her. I don't know how, who she had to apologize to for, for stealing. Nobody, nobody cared. Nobody found it. Like, you know what I mean? Like all sins were forgiven. It's like, ask for forgiveness, not for permission. You know, it's like, and then. So her thought is now that she understands where that receptor is, you can figure out how to block it so that any drug that would try to connect to it and and get that that high would be blocked. Exactly. But what happened happened instead? So she, um, interestingly, she not only discovered the opiate receptor, she pioneered the the technique that labs and all pharmaceutical companies still use today to test the drug efficacy and figure out dosage. The technique that she used was then deployed in her lab by everyone in the lab. She taught everyone, or, you know, Saul basically spread her knowledge around to, def- to find every other receptor. The, you know, cannabis receptor, the, the um, nicotine receptor. What has enabled the drug revolution? All SSRIs, Viagra, n- not only oxy relates back to her initial finding and her technique. Because a receptor is, I mean, just to sort of give a little, I'm not a scientist, so this was fascinating for me. I mean, Candace was doing revolutionary interdisciplinary work. So um, at a time when most scientists never looked beyond the, the, um, the confines of their silos. So I had to talk to, to really understand her work. I had to talk to people who were, you know, neuropsychopharmacologists, neurologists, um, immunologist, virologist. She was doing work that sort of was really crossed the boundaries into all these different fields. And, and essentially like a receptor is, is a little part that floats on the surface of a cell. And we have neurochemicals that fit into those receptors, kind of like a lock and a key. It's not a totally apt analogy because they kind of vibrate together and almost like sing. But so when one of the things that she realized is that and put forth was, okay, we, we don't, our receptors did not evolve. They didn't develop to just for exogenous drugs, for external drugs. We have to have our own internal chemical that's meant to fit into that receptor and set off a series of chemical reactions that actually, that hopefully benefits our body, right? Which makes sense, right? Because why else would our body have it if right. there wasn't exactly. something else that we need, that was part of our normal function? Right. As a result of Candace's, um, when she found the receptor, then suddenly within three years, um, two scientists, Hans Kosterlitz and John Hughes at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, discovered the reason for that receptor, endorphins. Endorphins means endogenous morphine, our body's internal high. Okay. And so what ended, and this is, this is sort of a key part of the story, because big pharmaceutical companies initially moved to develop um, drug treatments based on endorphins. They wanted to create a mimetic so that we could find some sort of something, you know, a, like we could have a drug that we that would fit into that receptor and block the receptor so that, you know, p- to stop people from coming, you know, becoming addicted, you know, and to stop overdoses. They proved unable to do that. And the minute they proved unable to do that, they thought about, huh, how else can we make money here? And they started making much more potent analgesics. 
And that's what led to the opioid crisis. Fascinating. I'm curious, when you, when you talked about her, she taught everybody in her lab about her process. Was that known at the time that she was the, the person who had discovered that, I guess, technology? I mean, was, was she given credit for that? Or was it just something that was just adopted by others, taken from her, and then other researchers and companies ran with it? That is a great question because it actually speaks to so much, you know, to, to a much larger issue in both academia and in the government. Um, you know, when you discover, when you make a big discovery at either an academic institution or at a government agency like the NIH, you are using their government labs. You are an employee. So your, your employer owns that technology. Your employer has the patent. What employers will do, and this is a huge issue right now with Catalina Carrico, who just won the Nobel Prize for her research in mRNA research, you know, her, her, in mRNA that yeah. led to the COVID vaccine, who was basically treated like a piece of garbage by the University of Pennsylvania. She and her partner, Drew Weissman, tried to get the patent, you know, they, they tried to get the light. Right. So, so Penn owns the patent or Johns Hopkins. I was going to ask patent, John right? Hopkins, uh, John Hopkins owns the patent and for, for Pert's research. Well, so I, yeah, process. so then you have to, what they, what institutions will do, they will allow you to license the patent. If you show that you have a viable commercial partner, someone who will fund this, you have, a, you have a path to commercialize, they will give you um, the ability and sort of like a seven-year lead generally to um, to commercialize whatever technology with the understanding. And this is actually quite fair, you know, that, that if you are able to do that, then a certain percentage of those funds goes back to medical research, right. you know? And so that's actually, that's a good deal. The problem is not all scientists like Catalina Carrico had the ability didn't have the funds to actually license her own patent initially. So Penn licensed it to someone else, has gone on to make tens of millions of dollars off of her discovery, and she's never made more than 60 grand a year. She just bought her first car. You know, and before, and so this was, uh, what I, that story was being told in the press, the Wall Street Journal told, like, did a great story about this, but then the, the conflict in the Middle East occurred and it right. basically drowned that. I mean, it was just lost. But I think there are bigger issues here faced by not only female scientists, but men, you know, about sort of, are you able to actually benefit personally from you know, from your discoveries. And, you know, some of the issues that are even happening about college sports, I think, are also relevant because now they've started to pay college athletes right, and actually right. give them a stake in things. So so what do you deserve as the individual versus, like, how much does the house take? I yep. think it's sort of a, a big issue and one worth investigating in greater depth. So take us back to Scotland. So yeah. they, so they, they make this discovery. And then you said, and this is kind of the beginning of the, of the, of the opioid crisis. What happens from there? So, well, I'm, I'll take you even back a couple of years further. So Candace stays. Typically, a graduate student will go and do um, do post postdoc work in another institution. But this basically, Candace's discovery revolutionized the entire field of psychopharmacology. And so she stays with her mentor, Stahl Snyder, because, well, and, and to <laughs> when we were talking about, you know, ask for for, um, you know, don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness. Yeah. Saul forgave her the second she found it because he saw a huge opportunity for himself. He, he involved her and he let her, you know, speak on this topic, but he also really moved to take credit for this himself. And I think, you know, this is where it becomes like the lines become blurred and gray because 
I, in, I interviewed many, many people about the ethics of this. And generally, it is not uncommon for lab chiefs to take credit for work that is done by their underlings, you know, because they did provide the guidance. They did provide the resources. You know what I mean? It's like the CEO of a company will right. take credit. You know, it's not just you You are the top, but hopefully you are the, the leader of your team, right? But what ended up happening was after allowing Candace to really be a vocal, um, you know, spokesperson for this, she was quoted in the press. I mean, this, this discovery received a ton of, um, of press and a ton of, um, you know, actually everyone in the government was trying to take credit for it too, because the NIH... Because they gave the, the, the funding. Right, right, exactly. So Nixon was trying to take credit for it. The NIH was then trying to take credit for it, because Nixon was trying to take money away from the NIH. So it was really, there was a land grab in terms of power and money and how this discovery would be used. And Candace is this 26-year-old woman at the center of it. You know, she was a newbie. She didn't know. She was thrilled, you know, and, she, and having her... She was all over the press. Then... When it came for the awards, though, here's where she really got destroyed. Um, Saul Snyder, and and he claimed uh, to not have any knowledge of this, but I interviewed people who say otherwise. Um, there was a the the chief at um, you know his his boss basically at Johns Hopkins um, put in an application for Saul to win the Lasker Award. He was nominated for the Lasker Award along with the two scientists at the University of Aberdeen who had discovered endorphins. Now, Candace was left out of that entirely. The Lasker Award is America's highest scientific award, and it is often a precursor to the Nobel Prize. And you could say, so the Lasker Award, actually, you could have more than three people. Why, why would Candace have been left off? Well, because only three people can win the Nobel Prize in any one area. So this was a strategic attempt to cut out the lowest man on the totem pole, who happened to have been a woman, because nobody thought she would fight back, you know, it, because they were positioning themselves. And, and Saul came from a line of Nobel Prize winners. Candace was in a line of people who were the absolute top in their field. Saul's mentor, Julius Axelrod, had won the Nobel Prize. His mentor, Steve Brody, hadn't won the Nobel Prize, but he had basically was considered the fa father of pharmacology. And so suddenly, Candace, who is next in line in that lineage, gets cut completely. And instead of, you know, putting her tail between her legs and going back to work, like Catalina Carrico did, by the way, when she was sort of cut out until, you know, this is an older woman who's finally winning the Nobel Prize at the very end of her career after being silent and silenced many times. I mean, her story is profound and, and echoes Candace's in a lot of ways. Candace became, can, she went to the press. And she got female journalists and all these people on her side to show precedent. John Hughes was in the same position on that paper as she was. She deserved to have some credit, but she was cut out in the race for money, power, and the Nobel Prize. And she became the Scarlet Woman of Neuroscience. And when you say that, was that because after that point, did she have a hard time? Was she kind of excommunicated from her lab and research at Johns Hopkins? Was she... So sort of just people were Can hesitant to work with her. What happened from Candace there? Candace was already working at the NIH at that point. Okay. So these, the, like these processes and these awards take years to sort of play out. So this was, she had discovered the opiate receptor in 1972. The Lasker Award um, uh, was awarded in 1979. 
And she found out about, you know, being cut out in 1978. So she was already firmly ensconced in her job at the NIH, which Saul had helped to get her, you know, secure for her and Agu positions at the NIH. Um, so she, she hadn't yet become what she went on to become chief of brain biochemistry at the yes. NIH, but she was already working there successfully. So she was working there. And again, Candace was a wild woman, right? She wasn't a linear thinker, as you've seen in her videos. She was, she was really, but she was doing really fruitful, incredible work. And, and, you know, her colleague there, Miles Herkenham, who I interviewed said she launched at like an absolute revolution in, in neuroscience. She was discovering all of these other receptors and she was bringing incredible people to her lab. She was a great mentor. But the minute this happened in 1979, she was, she was, she was branded. She was, you know, people stopped wanting to work with her. She was seen as ungrateful. And in part, not only because she was going after her mentor, but because she was exposing the seedy underpinnings and, you know, dirty business that underlies this field that is supposedly governed by reason. She was showing that it's actually... It's actually political. Political and dirty. Yeah. Amazing. And was that, was that the focus of the articles that were written? It was sort of about how the process of her being cut out and how the inner workings of the, whether it's the Lasker Prize or the, the, however they're positioning themselves for the Nobel Prize, that that was very intentional on their part, kind of cutting out the, the lower person on the totem pole and who happens to be younger and female. Some of them. And, and in some cases, there were, she was also cut out of another prize, um, and there was a, an official apology written after. So this was really, what she was doing was, you know, being a whistleblower and causing institutions to look at themselves, but she was doing it by sort of bringing it to the attention of others, which makes everybody look bad. And so that was not appreciated. <laughs> so now she's at the NIH. She's not the, the chief of brain biochemistry at that time. But she's there and she's continuing her work. And was her research there focused also, I mean, I guess if she went on to become the the chief of brain biochemistry, it was, again, similar work that she was doing when she was at Johns Hopkins. But she then discovers uh, peptide T. Yeah. Well, before peptide T even, in the early 80s, like 1981, she started to think about, and, and this all stemmed from her original receptor work. You know, it was almost like, again, it was iterative and organic. It was sort of like, oh, now I understand how this part of the brain works. She started to find, what, what you know, peptides. And she, she started to wonder, you know, hold on a second. How is it that we keep talking about if there are chemicals that actually fit into receptors in different parts of our, in both our brain and our body, then why do we assume that the brain and body don't talk to each other, right. are totally separate? And, and again, here what she was doing was paradigm-shifting work. Um, she was actually overturning the reigning paradigm that had governed Western medicine for 400 years. And this is another like interesting, crazy story. This is part of her Forrest Gump story. It, it said, is. Yes, it is. Her having- uh, it's like, so in the 1600s, Descartes, Rene Descartes, who's the father of like modern science and philosophy, wanted to autopsy bodies. He wanted to figure out like how our systems worked. But in order to do so, he had to get permission from the Pope because cutting out dead bodies was, you know, considered a sacrilege. So if he and the Pope could decide that man's inherent sacredness, we're not supposed to say man's these days, sorry, I'm an old lady, you know, humans' (laughs) inherent sacredness is really from the neck up, 
right? That our connection to the divine is entirely based in our brain. And that is sort of where we, you know, where our, our connection to God resides, then basically everything below is a meat sack, you know, and that's the deal that they made. Of course, that's wrong. And it goes totally counter to what everyone is taught in Eastern medicine, which is that everything is, you know, when you think about chi or prana, there's a life force, right? Candace was saying that Descartes and the Pope were wrong. And all of Western medicine was wrong because the entire NIH was built on the presumption that the brain and body are totally separate. That each, you know, and this is also why, and, and the grant structures were, were grants were structured in entirely um, silo-based, not interdisciplinary ways. You were basically taught, if you're a virologist, you're thinking about how to eradicate the disease, but you're not thinking about what caused it in the first place. And what Candace was saying is that if mind and body are actually linked, then things like, let's think about stress. She was one of the first people saying that stress could cause disease. That our minds influence our bodies and our bodies influence our minds and they are one. And she actually, through the flow of peptides, again, I mean, we can go deeper into the science, but she, these, these, these chemicals that basically were turning up on immune receptors in our body, but also in our brain. You know, she said if she showed in the early 1980s that this was a fact, she went on to write more than 200 papers about peptides, but it would be decades before she was believed, and her her work became what is now common knowledge. Like Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score, which has spent years on the New York Times bestseller list, he never name checks her. His enti- All of his research is based on her work. And he is espousing techniques that Candace was talking about 40 years ago. She what kind of techniques like meditation or things meditation, like- yoga, biofeedback, EMDR, eye movement, desensitization, you know, like all of this stuff she was basically saying and this also went to this also spoke to what she what she was seeing with the opiate receptor that what she was saying is that you know and this is another reason that she was highly controversial many of her colleagues at the NIH and from academ- academia were now working hand in glove and this also goes into the whole political situation why because Reagan rescinded funding from um from acad- from academic institute or he not rescinded funding he stopped government funding to academic institutions. So academic institutions around this time were forced to look to pharmaceutical companies to fund their academic research. Well, of course, that causes a conflict of interest. And so what Candace, so a lot of her colleagues were working hand in glove with pharmaceutical companies who did not necessarily put human health first. They put profits first. And she was seeing that this influenced the way that medical research was going and that many of her medical colleagues were um, were treating patients. So what she was saying is that... So is that when she realized that she'd opened Pandora's box from discovering... Here she discovers the, um, the opioid receptor, right? And yep. then she's... Does she talk about, or did, in what you've read about her, that moment where she recognized that the research that she had discovered was going in the direction that she intended it, the opposite direction because here she wanted to try to address addiction right and now she's seeing it yeah. you know being used um for quite the opposite it, purpose it was a slow process before she realized actually how bad it had gotten you know but what she was seeing was that she was realizing that there were all of these natural methods available to us that our body, you know, she was saying something controversial and and something that wasn't going to make 
her, her co- herself or her colleagues money, which is that the body and mind have the ability to heal themselves. And if we, there are all of these different things that we can do to reprogram our bodies at a cellular level that are available to us through natural means. But she saw that psychiatrists and psychologists who were treating based on the, the, the Cartesian model that mind and body are separate. So you had psychologists and psychiatrists treating the mind with no regard for its effect on the body, and then you had physicians treating the body with no regard for its effect on the mind. But if mind and body are one, then you have to look at the entire system holistically, and you have to treat it holistically. So you have cancer, but why did you get cancer in the first place? Have you been under stress for years? Were you abused as a child? Are you, has your body basically been in a permanent state of fight or flight, you know, firing off cortisol and things that actually cause cancer? Like she was looking into these ideas at a time when other, when other, um, particularly psychiatrists were trigger happy when it came to prescriptions. Oh, you're sad. Take a pill, fix your life. You're depressed. She was, what she was saying is we need to actually think. And now this philosophy is sort of, you know, entered into common knowledge, but she was saying this 40 years ago. We need to think about the, the root causes of disease and fix them as a root, not just take a pill, which just forms a Band-Aid, but doesn't actually get at the root cause. So how is that when you said she's doing this research and it's not being well received, was she at that time, you know, writing papers, she was speaking, or was she just such a sort of, I think I, I read this somewhere, sort of like the, kind of the, the scarlet letter of the scientific community at the time. And then did she, I know that she had this, that a lot of her work inspired, for example, Deepak Chopra and the work that he had done later. When did that start to, to shift for her, that her, her research and her work, um, you know, had, was, was getting attention from others in a, in a positive way? So, I mean, now if we, you know, we have the benefit of hindsight, so we can sort of draw the through line into yeah. all the different, all the different things, like how one led to the next to the next. But really in the moment, these, these things happened, they seemed sort of fairly singular, right? I mean, she, it was, you know, the, the knowledge of receptors that led her to sort of, oh, peptide, peptides fit into these receptors. How do they work? Those receptors exist in the brain and the body, right? But the, but it seemed that she was doing sort of separate work. Now we obviously it was all interlinked. Um, after that, she, she continued to sort of publish non, uh, you know, mind body studies, but none of this was really being picked up or respected by the scientific community. You know, it wouldn't be until the nineties that her work became, started to really infiltrate more. So I, one of the people I interviewed, um, was Lisa Feldman Barrett, who is one of the top 1% most, she's a, a Northeastern professor. Um, 1% most cited um, scientists in the field, which basically means she is an absolute leader and rock star. And what she said was she went back and, and looked at molecules of emotion before her interview, and she just said that she was blown away because so many of Candace's findings are now completely baked into the field yeah. to the extent that they're not even linked to her name. They're just common knowledge, and they're assumed to be true. But that those initial barrier-breaking studies that she did 40 years ago were met with tremendous um, resistance. They were, I mean, she was being laughed out of rooms. She was getting eye rolls reserved for mysticism by, by saying that Rene Descartes was wrong, that the basis of the whole NIH and Western medical system was wrong, that our way of treating the brain and the body separately was wrong. She was told that she was crazy. 
I mean, she's, she, they couldn't kick her out of the, of the NIH. She was doing enough really interesting work that people kept her around. But fundamentally, she was losing respect because she was, she was you know, boundary-breaking. When did she realize, or at what point did her um, peptide discovery get sort of directed towards AIDS research? And I know you talked a lot about the connection between government funding and how that kind of, you know, whatever work is being done, whether at academic institutions or maybe even labs that are supporting pharmaceutical companies, that they kind of pivot based on kind of um, where, where the, the funding is coming from, I guess, particularly academic institutions, probably more than pharmaceutical companies yeah. who have their own funding. <laughs> but um, how did that happen? What was that process for the, you know, saying, okay, wait a minute, this, this discovery of, of, of peptide T, we could actually use this to help fight HIV. Yeah. So, well, I mean, and again, this is, all of Candace's work was tied up with major movements, major political movements, and 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 historical, you know, cultural movements in in society. So, the AIDS pandemic was basically allowed to rage for five to ten years unabated because of prejudice, because nobody wanted to talk about homosexual sex and how AIDS was, you know, yeah. transmitted. Because you know, we had conservative people in our um, in our government who were stigmatizing, you know, gay men and blaming them. And basically, and then you had the Jerry Falwells of the world and, you know, all, all basically saying that this was God raining a plague down upon sinners. Right. I mean, so, so the scientists I talked to said that, you know, they weren't just doing medical research. They were fighting all types of, you know, stigmas and resistance at every part of the government, you know, so, so the Reagan administration, despite saying that it was their number one priority in terms of health, did not allocate any money to, wow. to um, you know, and, and interestingly, I have some examples in the book um, of how much money was allocated, how much money and sort of governmental researchers were allocated to uh, figuring out what caused a, a disease outbreak of like a couple, you know, I can't remember how many, but like tens of veterans, maybe it was 50 or 25 or whatever, it, Legionnaire's disease. Like immediately the government got on that, deployed resources, threw money at it to figure out that like the the there had been bacteria in the air system, you know, in the, in the, in the air conditioning of, you know, a hotel that where there was a veteran con. It was the same thing when the, the Tylenol scare happened, you know, seven people were killed by some rogue who draw, you know, who tampered with Tylenol yeah. and, 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 and huge press, huge governmental resources. Suddenly, if you look at like the, 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 just dollar amounts, it was like, the, an AIDS patient, someone with AIDS was worth like a quarter of a human being. You know how like they used to measure yeah, like slaves yeah. were three quarters of a man. This was like the people with AIDS were not interesting to the government at all. So and th that was just then, then there became a shift, a societal shift right. of, of people focusing. Finally, basically Reagan was shamed into, um, right. you know, there, there were enough... The um, advocates and uh, remember, groups like ACT UP became increasingly yeah, powerful. And, and I, remember, I remember there being a big shift when Magic Johnson, uh -huh. came, you know, became that became public that people who were prejudiced, you know, yep. and had other, you know, um, ideas about it, uh, yeah. I think began to realize that it's a broader 
A hundred percent. And I mean, you know, there were there were news programs and stuff. I talked to, um, you know, Dr. Jeff Galpin, who was, you know, an incredible researcher, was featured finally on, you know, to sh- on a show that, you know, showed that someone had gotten it through a blood transfusion. Right. Someone had gotten th- a, a child being born to a mother who had, you know, that it was an Which, equal opportunity. Which, by the way, is so shocking that that was even, that it had to be kind of justified as it being something that could be an accident as opposed to just the fact that this was oh. a, a disease that was spread however it was spread, but it's... It's completely. I mean, uh, the stigma killing the sti- people. The stigma was intense. So Candace was suddenly though. Reagan gets interested. It's the same process, right? He shamed. Finally, throw some money at it, right? Then it's like sharks to right. you know to to the scrum, right? So all the scientists who were not interested and didn't care before and really don't care about AIDS patients at all, but they come running because what are they, what's at stake? Money, power, the Nobel right. Prize, right? So there suddenly there's a lot more interest once the money is infused, right? You have Bob Gallo, who's a very senior guy at the at the National Cancer Institute. Um, he wants to stake a claim. You have Tony Fauci, who is the youngest leader of an institute at the National Institutes of Health. He led the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Disease. He wants to stake a claim. You know, everybody's vying for money and power. Power. Candace gets a call from Bill Farrar at the National Cancer Institute because he is seeing symptoms in AIDS patients. So they're doing these studies and they're seeing symptoms of dementia in the brain, like in AIDS patients. They're basically, so what they're figuring out is that AIDS is infecting the brain. And so he knew that Candace had done a bunch of work showing that the brain was connected to the body. And he said, huh, maybe AIDS is able to, you know, to pierce the blood brain barrier and get into the brain. Maybe we could, you know, so they start collaborating. And Candace comes up based on her sort of receptor technology. She comes up with a solution, peptide T, that is, is basically, she creates a mimetic of the disease that will lodge inside that receptor and block the disease from taking its place. So then suddenly the disease doesn't have any else anywhere else to go. So it doesn't spread. And if you can't lock in, then you can't then the disease can't survive. It needs to lock into a, a receptor to survive. So that was the theory behind it. And at first there was, you know, and, and so then I mean then it becomes this very long process and drawn out process about how, you know, in part Candace sabotaged herself, in part she was legitimately sabotaged and undermined by people who really put their own interests, um, you know, at heart. And, and I, I said this to you before, but I interviewed many scientists who were at the NIH and her, and her colleagues at academic institutions who are now old enough that they basically said, you know what, I don't have anything to lose anymore. I'm just yeah. going to tell you the truth. And these are stories that really made me, while I was doing this research, going through COVID, really mistrust, distrust the medical establishment and really question the motives of people who should, you know, be putting the Hippocratic oath first. But in fact, some, not everybody seems to be putting themselves first and their ability to profit first. I mean, this is the AIDS, what Candace went through during the AIDS crisis was actually, is just emblematic of a much wider cancer that is spread throughout our yeah. medical establishment. Yeah. And we could talk about that and, and COVID and, and, the, and that vaccine development and, and other things that, you know, even how our government didn't and I understand, you know, why they were trying to, you know, create some sort of order and, and have a, some sort of a roadmap. But I had just recently heard that Anthony Fauci was being interviewed and someone said, so where'd you come up with six feet? Having people be distant six feet. They just kind of picked six feet. Yep, six feet. Yeah. So anyway, we could go off based yeah. on that for a while. <laughs> but it is interesting 
you know, we've ha- we're, we talked about the 70s, we talked about the 80s, and you're seeing this kind of pattern of how drugs get developed and, yeah. and what, what happens in our country. And by the 90s, that. you know, by the 90s, Candace's opiate receptor discovery had been exploited to the extent by, you know, pharmaceutical companies who were um, largely, uh, you know, controlling the study, the, the, the underlying data. So basically, academic institutions, what she saw happening, which is, you know, a widespread practice. There's an incredible book that was one of my sources, John Abramson's. It's called Sickening. Um, and it's sort of, you know, I can't remember what the, uh, you know, the, the subtitle is, but it's sort of like, how, you know, what's wrong with American healthcare and how to fix it. I mean, he talks about he's, he's testified many times um, to the FDA and other places. And he talks about this story and I, you know, substantiated it and, and verified it elsewhere that during that time, pharmaceutical companies were because they were funding studies done at academic institutions. Um, they were the ultimate controllers of the data. So then suddenly they and they actually had they instead of doing it at the academic institutions, they started doing the um, performing the uh, experiments at what's called CROs, control uh, something research organizations. Right. They, they basically own the lab. So they own the lab. They have the scientists who do the data and then they hand off a subset of that data, a very a subset of that data that reflects very well on them and tells the story that they want to an academic institution. In many institu- instances, the, the academics did not know that they weren't receiving the full set of data. So they would write reports that they thought were true, that were basically functioning as marketing brochures for pharmaceutical companies. So, And then practicing doctors, you have your sort of doctors who are reading academic journals with the imprimatur of you know, top academic institutions, thinking that they are getting unbiased reports when in fact they're reading marketing brochures for pharmaceutical and it's the same thing happening with the fda yeah i mean the fda the fda had interestingly the fda has access to the total data set the fda had access to oxycontins at the absolute data set they knew that the claims being made that it's a slow release not addictive and all this stuff if anybody had done their homework the fda so academic institutions don't get access to that data the fda does so the fda is even more to blame because like for the opioid crisis because they had the information they just didn't so what's look at their it. motivation is it lobbyists and poly- i mean why would they not want I, to it's, that part is not clear to me yeah. whether it was laziness or um in you know just incompetence or whether there was some or, or whether there was something more nefarious afoot, you know, how they could let um, the creators of OxyContin go forward with claims that were absolutely fallacious. Uh, it, it's unclear to me how that happened. How did so? So Candace is at an IH, right? Mm-hmm. She's watching her research be applied into a positive thing, right? But mm-hmm. the AIDS drugs, and then she's coming out of that. She's now in the, in the 90s. Does she feel vindicated that her her research um, on mind body connection is is being substantiated <laughs> or supported or is it it's out no. there but it's just not being it's not being attributed to he, her here's where the story jumps the shark yet again it's like no Candace went rogue so the Dallas Buyers Club script is wrong the Matthew McConaughey character Ron Woodruff before he was getting that drug peptide T from a cheaper source in Mexico he was getting it direct, directly from the source. Candace like, became like Breaking Bad. She was working as chief of brain biochemistry at the NIH. 
but she was being legitimately sabotaged and undermined by colleagues there who were working with pharmaceutical companies who, who you know, were seeking profit in, in many cases and were trying to, un, you know, invalidate her research, who were really trying to sort of squelch her. And there was a lot of, I mean, again, I can go into the specifics I do in the book of, you know, this old boys club stuff that she called baloney, you know, going on. And, and there were a lot of... Um, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. And she was an outsider and she was a woman. And she was she had already sort of distinguished herself as a firebrand. But when no one would listen to her, what she ended up doing as a federal government employee was she, before Tony Fauci, in a legitimate way, cultivated um, relationships with AIDS activists and ACT UP and the Provincetown Positives, Candace went rogue. She started developing relationships with activists and distributing her drug, not FDA approved. <laughs> there were enough studies that had shown that it wasn't going to do any harm. So she knew she wasn't going to hurt anybody. This was actually sort of a natural, you know, it was based on a natural chemical. But she wanted to get their support because they were increasingly powerful, you know, with all of their rallies and lobbying yeah. the government. And she also wanted anecdotal support. You know, she wanted to sort of use this to gather data about whether it was working, and then have them lobby the government on her behalf. And so she was found out, and she and her husband, Michael Ruff, were kicked out of the NIH, in fact. This is her second husband. because Yes, she, this okay. is her second okay. husband, actually. And her partner, because the NIH found out. And they basically said, and he admitted this to me, they said, well, we could do this the nice way or the not-so-nice way. They allowed her to keep her pension if she left quietly. Of course, what I realized was none of this was in her memoir. You know, part of my desire to sort of tell her story is to tell the true story, because in her memoir, she had told the story that suited her. And what I was finding... Was, is mo Molecules of Emotion is her memoir that... Correct. Okay. Yeah. So and she sort of left that part out. How, oh, how yeah. She, she left out a lot of stuff. That? I mean, did she, she say that she just left NIH and then she went on to She did be a have a financial and, sponsor. So there were there were a number of people. So there were all of these sort of contradictory. And this is not uncommon in science that, you know, that certain um, experiments are unable. They said failure to replicate. It's like the, the you know, nail in the coffin. But really, if you look at like every sort of big scientific advancement, you know, Experiments are, you know, people fail to replicate them all the time because they do it a little differently because, you know, and then over time enough people do them and they get repeated and then, you know, something becomes like scientific truth. So it's part of the scientific, you know, method for this. to, But but this was a very um, it was like five alarm chili. This was like a very high stakes time in science where the spotlight was once again on on Candace, but also on these leaders at the NIH, because after years of failing to sort of rein in AIDS or help in any way, the government was really watching. And a lot of people with money and power were watching. So this was an extreme time. It just did the, the same thing with the opiates. It was an extreme high intensity time. And Candace did something that was crazy. You know, she, so she, she was arming, you know, working with activists, but then she finally, there was, um, Elaine Kinney Thomas at Oncogen, you know, based in Seattle had sort of, you know, replicated her, um, results and there, she had enough people in, in serious and, um, significant positions that she was able to raise funding. She got a Pittsburgh industrialist and some of his biotech investors. And so the story that she tells in Molecules of Emotion is really one of like, I told you so, you know? She was like, oh, okay, I'm being squashed at the NIH. I'm gonna waltz into the I sunset see. in my limo and champagne with these fabulous you know, f investors and funders who really know the truth and the truth is mine. And the reality is, 
peptide T, we, we still don't know. Because, I mean, this is part of what happened as she personally, and she, she had bipolar disorder. So, and I, I don't want, I don't lead with that because I feel like I didn't want people to write her off as crazy. But she did do a lot of things that sabotaged and undermined herself. Um, and yet many geniuses throughout history yeah. have been, you know, what, what they call it, touched by fire, yeah. you know, as, you know. And so, so Candace, her life began to unravel then. And so part of what I and what she talks about in her memoir is not actually representative of the truth. You know, the way she ends up ends her memoir is on this very hopeful note, because saying that peptide T um, had once again gotten funding and they were waiting to see, you know, what happened in the world and that she was hoping that she had contributed something that could really help and save people. What ended up happening is that's partially true, but also partially untrue. Because there's a real tragedy to Candace's um, story as well. So what what happened there at the end? I mean, when you talk about so she's so she writes this memoir. She's um, now is she speaking, doing speaking engagements, and so Candace ended up becoming because she wasn't getting the um, the respect and, and admiration that she desired within the mainstream scientific community, or at least not as quickly as she would have wanted. You know, I mean, I think if she had done, if she had done what Catalina Carrico did, which is just sort of put her head down and accept her fate. And, and this is, this is part of the larger conversation about like, what do we as women have to do to actually get what is due to us, you know, and recognized, you but, know, but it, did she by pushing back, you know, yeah. whether it was known or not kind of, you know, make it possible for female scientists after her she to push back. A hundred percent she did. I mean, and she cites Rosalind Franklin, who Jennifer Doudna talks about in Codebreaker. You know, I mean, she this this is a touchstone for women because Rosalind Franklin's um, work to identify a key part of DNA was stolen by Francis Crick and Watson Crick. And that allowed yes. that enabled them to win the Nobel Prize. And part of Candace, what Candace said is, no way, I'm not going to be another Rosalind Franklin. And, it, you know, subsequently, that story is told, that story is used as sort of a jumping off point. And, you know, and Candace's was by women, you know, many women afterward. Um, well, so her she, story, I mean, thanks to you, <laughs> is being told. And thanks to you is really getting out there. I mean, the reviews for the book are tremendous. Incredible review from the Wall Street Journal. I saw Steven Soderbergh wrote something about you on his blog. I mean, how does that feel seeing your work and you talked about living with her for these past six years, seeing it get that kind of recognition? And um, I think because not only is it just, I think, so um, surprising that someone who's made such an impact is not a household name, um, but I think thanks to you, she she will be. But it's also a story that I think with res resonates also with, I guess, many people with their careers, but particularly women. I mean, how she didn't get the acknowledgement that she deserved at different times in her career. Yeah. She emulated the behavior of the dominant male in many situations. And the dominant males of her generation all went on despite backstabbing and lying and cheating and yeah. all that stuff to continue to have absolutely phenomenal careers. And one of the, and one of the things I say is, yeah, she did some really bad stuff, but a lot of what she was doing was actually the cultural norm. You know, she was seeing that behavior all over the place. And so what happens when women or people of color or people who aren't part of the dominant group then adopt those behaviors because they have to, to succeed 
But then essentially you do, you know, you do the thing that you're not supposed to do that everybody else is getting away with right. and you're burned at the stake. Right. And so part of what, you know, part of what I'm I, using her story is like a launch pad to discuss like wider issues of like what turns a good person bad? You know, what are these? And this goes back to Stiletto Network. What are the systems that we devise that actually provide incentives for people to be good or for people to sort of go sideways, you know, and, and what, and how do we fix some of those systems? You know, if you look at Candace's story, I mean, she ended up with her husband defrauding investors. I mean, in, in, in the end, it was people who did not have money to give. There was a woman who, who remortgaged her house for $250,000 and is basically destitute as a result. Candace and Michael did this knowingly. They cheated people. They lied to the FDA. They lied to the women, Whitman Walker Clinic. They committed federal crimes. And so, and, and they've never been, I mean, Candace has died, but her husband has not been punished for any of this. And this is what's so interesting. He just received three grants. This is, our, this is like an Elizabeth Holmes story. Oh, it, it most certainly is. It is exactly an Elizabeth Holmes story. Um, except for Candace seems to have more heart and soul. I want to yeah. believe. I mean, well, I, and I, actually she has this, this legacy of where she's made an incredible impact yeah. prior to that. She did all these amazing things, but in the end it went so sour that it was devastating. And Michael Ruff, based on a patent that Candace filed that may be illegal, by the way, um, right before she died, has now received three, uh, $6 million in new grants from three separate NIH agencies, despite being a criminal. Wow. Yeah. And he's out there. And he's, this is taxpayer money. $6 million of taxpayer money has gone to him to make him more money to fund his research. That basically he's doing after Candace died. It was based on, but it was all her work. She, she, it was her patent and he got it when she died after cutting her kids, oh. after cutting her kids out of the will. I mean, I think there, there's a sequel to this book, <laughs> which is what happened. It's so dirty. I, mean, I, I never thought this story. I thought I was telling a story of like a female trailblazer, yes. a, like a hidden figure. I never thought that I would become a crime reporter, but that's what's happened. I love it. Well, that's my, my next question is, what is next for this book, but what is next for you? What's your next project? I mean, I know that I know that the next thing for you is not going to be just one thing because you have so many talents and so many different passions and you've got so many projects in the works. But what do you think is next for this, this book or this story? It's, uh, it's back to 2015, but with a different piece of intellectual property. <laughs> you yeah. know, instead of um, creating a project based on Candace's book, I am working to create a film or a limited series. I mean, that's the, that's been the hope since day one. It was certainly a, a an unexpected and, like I said, circuitous path to get here. But what I would really love, I mean, Candace is such a dramatic figure. It's such an incredible part for an actress to play. I would love to see this on screen. I mean, that's that's the hope. I have an, I have other irons in the fire, but this is by far my passion project. I, I love her. I love this character. I love the very meaty issues that it raises, and I sort of, I'm not done. Uh, well, I was going to say, I, I, I can't wait to see it, and I know that's going to be the second Emmy <laughs> on your on your bookshelf for Bless sure. Now I'm you. I'm serious. Like, it's been a long road. It's such a fascinating story and it it as you said it touches upon so many different themes and issues that are happening within our society and and other cautionary tales. Um but but what an what an incredible story and um you tell it in <laughs> in such an incredible um thoughtful and beautiful way. So Thank you. 
I, I can't know, wait to see what's next. I got a lot of help. And I have to say, like, I'm so grateful to Candace's family. I'm very close to her kids, to her cousin, her sister. I'm, you know, I there were a lot of people who opened doors. I mean, similar to Stiletto Network. Yeah. You know, like I worked really, really hard. But this, the number of scientists who spent so many hours with me, you know, working on this, I, I just, again... I feel responsible not only to Candace, but to her family and also to, to the sort of the, the, the crowd that came together for this. Oh, well, you are. I mean, her story <laughs> is in great hands with you, for sure. Um, but Pam, I'm just so happy to see you. I'm, I'm so, so excited about this, so this, this incredible book and uh, this story. And I can't wait to see where it where it leads. Me but too. I really appreciate you coming in. Thank and, you so much. And taking the time to talk to us about it. And I, I can't wait for part two. You mentioned you being a crime reporter. I want to hear, you know, There's whatever, more where whatever's that happening <laughs> next. And um, I look forward to watching you and, and cheering you on in the next what comes next after this. Thank you. And I'm so excited for your next oh, adventure. This is you. wonderful. Thank you. Well, I'm so happy to see you. So thanks so much. That brings us to the end of this episode of The Interview. A big thank you again to Pamela Reichman for joining us. And as always, thank you again for listening. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Instagram at The Interview with Leslie Heaney. A new podcast is released every Wednesday. Until then, this is Leslie, and don't forget to join The Interview. The Interview.